says, I know it's a crazy way to make a living, but I bet Donny Osmond can't do it. In today's feature, we'll talk lots of facts. You probably heard these people get visions looking in their hats. Their host got lots of stuff, but probably not a TV. If I live there, I hold a square up so you're looking at me. This week, for this week, it's about the Mormons. I may bite my tongue when I speak. I got on my geek glasses and suspenders. You were talking Mormons for this week. <laughs> Yes, it is, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another fantastic edition of This Week in Mormons, the premier Latter-day Saint news podcast, the OG, whatever you want to call us. Here we are in season 13, just still doing this thing that we do. I'm the founder of the show, Jeff Openshaw. And I'm Jared Gillins. I'm an occasional co-host. Yeah, but you're still, you're one of us, Jared. I am. I, I feel like I belong. You're one of us. You're, 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 you're not on the a, a welcoming looking. space here. Why? Thank you. I try to do that for everyone. In, in, in but as I gaze into your office and I see your cool Fender-esque guitar and your map of the Iberian Peninsula, I just feel I feel at home. Well, thank you. Thank you. I don't put out my nicer guitar because it's a semi-hollow body and I don't want the basement air to affect it. Whereas yeah. that's a janky knock uh, Strat knockoff. And it's is, a it a, is it a, what do you call it? an esquire or no 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 it's not even made by fender oh it's, a, it's not even it's like their PV. low grade it's a pv it's the worth PV makes amps they also make guitars they make, yeah, they make guitars and basses and stuff sure interesting yeah so uh only people on youtube watching right now actually it's right over there yes yeah, so i uh it's the first guitar i ever had years oh. ago years and years ago my dad got it for me with a little practice amp it's not much, but over the years, I did stuff. I filed down the frets. I replaced the pickups with noiseless pickups. I got it set up better. It's still Ooh. a hunk of junk. I should replace the tuners. No, no, it's nice that you've kind of customized it, improved it a little. I my first this. guitar was a, a Yamaha acoustic, and I believe my younger brother, the Shark, I believe he still has that. I, 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 I either gave it to him or I sold it to him for a very small amount. And my current guitar, which is in my wife's office over that way because yeah. that's the music room her her, her her work is music based so i just keep my guitar next to her piano anyway it's a um it's a fender it's a fender acoustic it's got a nice cedar body i like it, it makes a nice so warm sound. i was i was long in the market i, I my other guitar it's well i've got an a, a acoustic but that other one on the edge mm-hmm. that one is right there that mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my semi-hollow body. It's a, it's an Epiphone um, yeah. Sheridan 2 Pro. It's a beauty. It's wine red. I'm in love with it. I only got it this past year. I saw a great, great, great deal on uh, Facebook Marketplace. I've been scouting them on there in Reverb for a long time. Guy lived all the way up in Wilmington, Delaware. So mm. it's January, right after a bunch of snowstorms here. I got up very early in the morning on a Saturday, hopped in my car, Drove all the way to Wilmington and got there like 7 a.m. before he had to work because he was a uh, like he worked he was like uh, worked for the sheriff's department. That is because it's at least what like that's got to be a three hour drive to Wilmington. It's like right? two and a half okay. or so to get up there. I know I was very close to Philly by that point. I thought I should have just popped up to Philly and had some fun there. Picked up my stuff. Very nice fella. Beautiful guitar. Great deal. Came with the case and just uh, turned around. Came home, stopped in Little Italy in Baltimore on the way home to get some cookies, and it was a great trip all around. So Epiphone is to Gibson as Squire is to Fender, right? Like kind uh, of the same idea? This this is, well, this is a weird discussion to have on the show. I don't think it's quite that. I feel like Squire is far more entry level, whereas Epiphone's has their followers and can be used as like genuine. 
that's what I've wondered. Because I, I have I have read some very nice things about Epiphone, your semi-hollow uh, type guitars, that they make some really high quality ones. Yeah, so. I mean, you can buy a lot of Epiphones. It'll cost just as much as getting like a Mexican-made, you know, Fender Strat or anything like that. You know, you're easily, you can be nipping up on $1,000 for an Epiphone easily. You're not going to see that with the Squire. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it is. Interesting times. Well, I'm glad you like my room. It's Iberia, beautiful mm-hmm. Spain, where I served my mission. Our nephew... Just had his mission farewell uh, yesterday. Sorry, not his farewell. He gave remarks prior to leaving on his mission. We'll call it that. Um, his Instagram post, and he's going to Portugal. That's the point of this. So he's going to Portugal. And um, his Instagram post, like probably his last one before he can't use that stuff anymore before he got set apart, said something like, I'm moving to Portugal. Please follow me. He said, he said, drop your emails to, uh, oh, I'm going to mess this whole thing up. Drop your emails to follow my lit, spicy journeys or some some random thing that 18 year olds or 19 year olds would say uh, i was dying because it's like the greatest possible way to express the excitement about going out i think i've got it right here yes that's really funny moving to portugal comment your emails to hear about my lit fire sauce adventures <laughs> that's amazing i love the youth and, I love their, the youth. and their parlance when we watched him open his call on zoom with a bunch of BYU students, I heard the word lit. I thought lit was already out of fashion, but everyone was just saying like, dude, this is so lit. This is so lit. Does it truly go out of fashion or is it just sort of like, you know, you still hear people say dope, even though we're well past the nineties, but you know, you can still use it even though it might not be fashionable. You could say dope and people know what you mean. And maybe it's like, oh, I don't use dope, but I'm not going to judge someone else for saying it. Yeah. I will judge someone who was on the call, a girl who was like, Portugal, is that in South America? Yeah. And all I thought it was Arrested Development when Job sees the yacht and says, Portugal, going down their old South America way, eh, Mikey? <laughs> um, so that's the times, folks. Well, well let, me, let me give you a quick update. So you, oh, you, yeah. you've, you've mentioned your surroundings, and I'd just like to point out that I'm sitting here in a shirt that I've had since 1995. Good. And the, and the reason for that is because it's been just sort of a hectic day, and this was the only clean thing that on the top of my drawer that I could find. So we had a little, of, uh, a little bit of sewage back up into our upstairs bathroom. Jared is incontinent. Yes, that's what we're talking. No, about. no, uh, this is actually no. Anyway, so I'll, I'll make a long story short. And basically, we found out when we we find we really got a plumber out today. We had to stay the night at my wife's aunt's house where we first lived when we moved to Idaho. But we find we got a plumber out today. And he uh, had to run this crazy, long, powerful, like snaking tool. Yeah. And he was yeah, yeah. ripping roots, roots out of our sewer pipe. It's so, a rotor rooter. Yeah. Yeah. Everything inside our house is new, like as of February. Like it was, this is completely renovated home from 1940. Uh, but yeah, once the those nice, clean, new PVC pipe hits the outside of the house, you get into like a clay <laughs> pipe with that has seams. And if a pipe has seams and it's been around for 80 years... Trees and other and bushes and such send their roots to try to get at the water. So anyway, I guess there was a buildup of roots and it was preventing the proper flow of water out to the sewage main in the street. And some of that backed up. So we were able to get that rooted out. And then I guess, I guess uh, PSA for our listeners, if you're in a place that's prone to having tree roots invade your sewage pipes, you can buy root killing chemicals that you occasionally mm-hmm. pour down your drain and it'll help keep the root root growth to a minimum so that's what we'll yeah. be doing from now on uh but yeah so i've had kind of a weird hectic day running back and forth between the aunt's house and our house and getting the plumber here and yeah we had to go kind of we had to leave like at 10 30 last night to go over to the aunt's house because we we're like well 
we can't use any toilets here. So <laughs> I, I, you know, I didn't, I feel that pain. Growing up, my mom's house where I grew up was built in 1920 mm-hmm. and uh, roots have been like an ongoing problem. Like my whole life, all the time, once I start backing up, call the rooter, gets a snake guy. And yeah, that's been like a pretty consistent part of our life for. Is that why they call it a roto rooter? Because it spins and grabs the roots. Uh I never made that connection. Yep. I remember that guy going out there and then there's that, that feeder, that exhaust pipe tube Mm -hmm. and and the roof and he just feed it down there. And just next thing you know, he's just pulling up all this stuff and that's crazy. That's what happens. So this is why everyone tuned in and learned about guitars and uh, rotor rooting. And and sewage backups and and how to prevent them. Also, you might be tuning in because in case you somehow missed it, I would say this is one of the bigger stories of the year that we can talk about this week. I mean, a lot as of things far, happen- As far as church news, Mormon history news goes, for yes, sure. Yes, yes. As far as personal news, well, I mean, I, I told you about my guitar and everything's coming up basis for me. But uh, as far as church news goes, you might have seen that allegedly, purportedly, however we want to say it, uh, a photo has surfaced that is supposed to be of actual Joseph Smith. And for for so many years, we've often wondered if, if a photo exists of the prophet Joseph. None has ever surfaced that's been authenticated. You know, we, we even see a picture. It's funny, like my kids tonight, we're looking at the, the Doctrine and Covenants for Kids, you know, book. And the back of it shows the prophets up to President Hinckley. Even though we bought it well after 2008 when he passed away, they never even bothered like adding President Monson to it when it was still in publication. But um there's photographs of every single prophet from Brigham Young on, but not of the prophet Joseph because it was just right before that when daguerreotypes were becoming a thing, right? He died in 1844. I was right on the cusp of photography becoming more, more prominent. Right, but then we, 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 we come up with this like, well, it's possible because we do have a, an actual photograph of like the Nauvoo temple. Right. And so, you know, and yeah. things like that. And so we know that at that time in that area, photography, technology was available and so it was just it was just very it was nascent at the time right for sure and so we've often wondered does a photo of the prophet exist there had been none for as far as we've known until um this story the story's been in the works for a couple of years i guess but a man named dan larson and his wife on saturday morning in march 2020 um they discovered what they think is photographic evidence of the prophet he's a great great grandson of smith and then one of these effects passed down to him was a pocket watch that bore the initials of his great-grandfather, Joseph Smith III, the prophet's older son, who was also the founder of the reorganized church, later the Community of Christ. Um, Larson inherited the locket shortly before his mother's death in 1992. Its finial was bent. He couldn't open it, so he just kind of put it away. So, so, so basically, because of the pandemic and they found time on their hands, stuck at home, they kind of really got into it, pried it open, and found this face of a man. And then, long story short, I'm sure I'm going to butcher a little bit of this, but they worked with some historians from the John Whitmer Historical Association and some others. And they also looked at the uh, Joseph Smith's desk mask and used you know, computers and such technology and what have you to see if this was a match or what this might be. And so they think that this company that recognized daguerreotypes comparing it to the the, the death mask reported that 19 of 21 features matched with with a 95% confidence interval, which I don't speak all that language, but I assume that just means they're very confident that it matches up appropriately. So it took a long time to do this, and we can I don't think I'm cutting out too much extraneous detail, even though it's a pretty long article from Jana Reese that first started kind of talking about this. But most signs here are pointing to this actually being a photo of the prophet, uh, which is fascinating to me. I mean, I think the first thing you ask compared to the classic portrait of him 
and this is, do you think they match? Do you think it, do you think it, it works, Jared? I mean, what's, what's oh, your, what do I, um, or anything? I don't know. I can see it. And like, I'm no computer with, that can map out the facial features of one thing and match them to another. So I, I feel a sort of like ill prepared to, or not ill prepared, just ill suited to give this, you know, a, a definitive opinion, but I mean, I can see it. I can see there's definitely a resemblance. He looks a little more, uh, what's the word? Brutish, maybe? or I mean, Which makes sense. He had a frontier life. He had a hard life being chased around and tarred and feathered and et cetera. And so he looks a little more rough, I guess, uh, than I had kind of anticipated, especially with the portraits that kind of give him a nice cherubic kind of roundish face. I'd say cherubic is actually a good way to look at it, to describe, I think, most of the depictions of the prophet. Right. That's, that's perfect and, words, right? But yeah. like if you if you say, okay, well, take away the idealism of 19th century portraiture and add in the, the realities of frontier life and a rougher frontier life than most, you know, pioneers and, and people of that era had, uh, then yeah, I could, I could see it. What do you think? I mean, I can, I can, yeah, I think I do agree. The photo is someone who looks almost a little more like, yeah, square jawed, a little bit rougher, as you say. Some things are funny too, because his hair also seems to be almost a different style the way it is than a lot of the depictions. Have Although often. he does have kind of that little side tuft thing. He's know. got the side tuft thing, but it almost looks like he's got it kind of down the middle, then like a far, a nice, a nice little oiled part over. But that's just hair. That's fine. But like I've looked at his death mask and looking at it, and the one, some things are interesting to me because it's like I, I, I can see it, but then at the same time, like some things I don't quite see. Like it seems to me like his nose and some of his features still look in the death mask a little bit more like some of the paintings depict him mm-hmm. and the differences there. And what's intriguing to me is kind of how this is a Rorschach test in general, because a lot of people I've seen have seen the two photos and they'll be like, oh yeah, totally. It gels. And some other people, I, they, they're like, these are two entirely different people. Like I've sure. seen all sorts of comments across the board. Well, I've seen some people and they'll put up, you know, because the, especially if you go to the church museum, generally they display Joseph's death mask right next to Hiram's. Yeah. And so they'll have the, you know, somebody will, I've seen people put up a picture of the two side by side and say, I don't know. Things, I think this looks more like it's possibly Hiram's photograph. And it's so interesting to me because again, like, you know, these, this article is like, well, we have this run through this fancy super duper computer program and it found 41 points of similarity, blah, 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 95% accuracy. And other people are like, eh, it looks more like Hiram to me. It's probably Hiram. <laughs> it's like every, everybody becomes an armchair forensic historian, you know, which I think is one of the funny things about an event like this. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Oh, here's here's on Reddit, on the ex-Mormon Reddit, which, you know, tread lightly, folks, if you visit the ex-Mormon Reddit. But um, even they, someone actually took the death mask and put it on top of this new photo and sort of slowly blended it together and are like, well, it seems like everything here lines up like pretty perfectly, quite frankly, with how it should be. So right. I don't know. His nose to me is the most, at least from this one photo, looks a little bit different than what I would expect. His nose seemed like it had a little bit more, I don't know, bulbousness to it or a little more of a hook nose. I don't know. But I hope they authenticate. I mean, I I hope we can really know for sure. I I think a lot of science is pointing this in one way. The church um, has, of course, jumped in on this. And what's fascinating is I, I have to think the church was made aware of this process for the past two years, even though it seems like they just kind of up and responded to it when everything dropped the other day. But I like... I think they probably d- didn't respond, like say anything first because there was nothing like you know. The, well, the church is often more of a a reactor than an actor what? with stuff like this. Like they yeah. wait for they're not going to like draw attention to the thing until 
until it draws attention to itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, and I completely agree. So of course the church is mostly just saying, this is interesting. We welcome, you know, new information about this. And we basically hope that people will continue to research it so we can find out for sure. The church by no means said, yep, that's him. And president Nelson has received inspiration to confirm that that is it. Right. But let's, uh, I would contend that the church actually, you, you could argue that they actually put more into the doubt side of things than the, you know, well, maybe it is. So, or, or so I, when I saw this story on Twitter, I, I, I thought of our old guest from a year or two ago. What was it? A year and a half ago. Anyway, Keith Erickson. Keith Erickson. Yeah, he's the. Uh, I believe he's still the head of the Church History Library in Salt Lake City. Boy, if he's he not, he should be. Published a book called "Real Versus Rumor," and we, uh, Jeff and I, read it, and we had him on the show, and we had a nice interview with him. Anyway, so I, I I thought about him and I and I and I kind of added him on on uh, Twitter and I said, "Hey, what do you what I want you to weigh in on this?" And he responded with uh, he had already uh, written up some stuff on Twitter. And so first of all, he says, uh, "In today's case, pay close attention." Oh, he says, "I here's what I wrote about photos generally in real versus rumor." I'll read this real quick. It's a short paragraph. It says. In order to d- definitively identify an actual photograph of Joseph Smith. We would need an image that corroborates surviving physical descriptions, plus a well-documented story about how he sat for the photograph, historical context, and a really clear story about where the photograph has been hiding for more than 175 years, provenance. Every claim of a photograph of Joseph Smith should be investigated very carefully. So, and so then in the uh, comments then below his tweet where he quoted himself, uh, he quotes the church statement and uh, a, seg- a segment of it anyway. Uh, and then I'll, I'll skip most of it, but the, uh, down in the third tweet where he's quoting the, the church's response, it says, we concur that the daguerreotype and locket were created of materials and methods appropriate to the 1840s. However, as nothing is definitively known about the locket's history before 1992, we cannot draw a conclusion about who is picture than the daguerreotype. Um, and then they end with what you mentioned. This is, we welcome the, the recent publication of the image. Hope it will prompt the discovery of additional information. Hope helpful to determining its authenticity. But, but yeah, so but what Keith Erickson is pointing out here is that there's a big, like, 150-year hole in the history of this object that you know, we just simply have no, nothing documented, at least as far as we know, about where this locket was from... 1844, whenever the supposed sitting of the photograph was, to 1992. And that's a long time to have doubt about where this could have come from and who it could be. So I I personally am uh, weighing in on the doubt side, even though I do see very, you know, to me it's very clear that it could very well be the man that we see in his death mask and the official portraits that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I lean in on the doubt side of it because... We just don't know where did this locket come from. We have a nice story from the man who, who, who in whose possession it is, but we just don't. They, there's no, there's no documented evidence for what happened to this thing or where it came from before the early '90s. So that's that's yeah. that's my two cents for what. And, that worth. It, and I agree. The provenance is the whole thing, right? We just don't know exactly where it came from. And uh, and what's interesting is given the line as well, like you know, it apparently was came from Joseph Smith the third. 
Okay, I think it, it could be another Smith as well as the main thing I'm getting That's at That's true, it, yeah. It could be in many, many other Smiths who were- Yeah, I mean, there's several brothers that it could be of Joseph's. Uh, it could be one of his children. It could be a nephew. It could be, I mean, a cousin. There's there's a lot of Smiths that could bear a family re- resemblance. Yeah. And have so, a squarer jaw and a more bulbous nose. Yeah, well, I mean, a less bulbous nose. So Whatever, the, less I bulbous. think the more bulbous nose is the picture. Yeah, I think he's got a bit more of a- of a clearly defined nose in the, in the picture. Looks like a, more of a hunk, you know? And you, like you were saying before we recorded, people were almost like disappointed. Like, you know, is it like, what were you saying? Like, it's just, so it's some people were like, well, do you think this is like more attractive than the, the or, you know, than the, of the, you know, the official portrait we have or less so? And I was just like, why Why are people debating on Twitter if this is hot or not? For, oh, it is ab- absolutely more attractive. I believe the photo is more attractive. Mm-hmm. You, you could see him out on the farm splitting rails. I could see him out there playing that stick pull and stuff like that. The cherub, as you said, you know, less so, but this, this, oh yeah, this man, this is not to be trifled with. It's a frontier also, man's you, man. Here, here's one question for you. I can't, you can't tell in the photo for sure, but the man looks reasonably chiseled in his face. Sure. Joseph Smith, we know he put on a few pounds near the end of his life compared to the As people do when they get to their 40s. People do. I mean, I guess he was 39, but still. But still, all we can see is like, that's one one photo from one angle. You know, there's not a lot you can ascertain. But from that look, I don't see someone in the picture who looks particularly like there's a lot of like excess body fat going on, but it's extremely hard to tell. People put on, hey, people, there's different body types. Maybe he just had a little bit around the belly. You know, maybe he just, his thighs got a little chunky. You just don't know how people put on weight. I I hope it it all goes to his thighs. Yeah. It's like, ah. Who knows? Every time I eat funeral potatoes, Emma. Straight to the thighs. Yeah. Mm. Well, we're going to keep an eye on this. Who knows what will happen? I, I mean, this story might exist or this I would might love be all we hear be, about I would it. love to be like for my skepticism to be washed away by further documentation of where this thing has been and where it's come from. And and, and like uh, he says, well, also, we have nothing. We have no well-documented story about the historical context of him sitting for a photograph. And that's not terribly surprising because we know from other uh uh, readings and such that he was a terrible like he tried to keep a journal a few times and he, he was a bad personal record yes, keeper he was very bad. most of our records of joseph come from wilford woodruff like being a really copious note taker in meetings uh and things like that and so yeah or, or or like stories you know orally transmitted later on and so it would it's not surprising that we don't have a journal entry for him saying sat for a daguerreotype today what an interesting technology this is you know like sorry i don't know i put on the old timey fdr <laughs> radio voice but like um but, but yeah so it's not surprising that there's not that but still it makes you wonder like if the prophet had sat for a photograph this brand new technology wouldn't somebody have noted it um wouldn't we have some sort of story you know kind of accompanying the occasion one would think yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Like, who knows? There's tons of undiscovered historical evidence out there just waiting for some archivist to stumble across. So we'll see. We'll see what comes up next. Isn't it curious that the you know the most pivotal prophetic figure in the, in the Restoration, Joseph Smith, is the the only one where we still have to kind of get an image of him in our heads based on on what we think we know about him. Like, I, I find it curious. I don't know if it's it sounds silly, but like I don't think your face should be any stronger just because you can see a photo of Brigham Young. But I almost think like the myth around Joseph Smith can be even bigger because 
we have to develop our interpretation of what he looks sure. like because we don't have that, which is just, in, to me, it's just kind of intriguing when you think about that from a. Sure. Like if you saw a photograph of George Washington and he kind of like hunched a little bit, like that would totally destroy like this heroic yeah. image we have of him from his official portraits in his military uniform. You, you yeah. So it might kind of break some of the, like the myth surrounding the great man. And so, uh, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe it's better if we don't, but again, like you said, he's got that square jaw and he looks like a tough guy. So I don't know. I think it can only make you go, yeah, there's a there's a frontier prophet. There we go. Anyway. Booyah! So as long as we're talking about uh, church history, let's talk about uh, what happened yesterday, Sunday, July 24th. Biggest annual holiday in the state of, of Utah. It was Pioneer Day. And interestingly, I live in Idaho, as you know, in eastern Idaho, where there's a big LDS population. And I was expecting church to be all about Pioneer Day. And it really wasn't. Like, there was hardly any mention of it at all. Uh, They mentioned that our stake is putting on like a Pioneer Day celebration next Saturday. But other than that, like the talks in church were about like love and (laughs) family and things like that. And nobody really brought it up. And then second hour... We talked about um, self sufficiency, <laughs> so like and like, yeah, or you know, and like you know, make sure you're managing your finances well. It was like the the least pioneer day of all pioneer days. How what was it like uh, out on the east coast? Did you guys uh, talk it up or? Uh, it was a lot more about like covenants, temple stuff like that. So no, yeah, so no, not really. There were some. Uh, so again, I mean, I know hymns, like, yes, officially it is a Utah State holiday. Um, it's not officially recognized as a holiday anywhere else in the United States or the world, I believe. Uh, I have a friend um, who every year remarks that it, he's he was born and raised, I believe, in, he lives in the Chicago area, and I'm pretty sure he was born and raised in Illinois. And he says, I will start caring about uh, Pioneer Day when the Saints and the rest of the world start caring about Casimir Pulaski Day, um, <laughs> which I guess is a very Chicago-centric yeah, that's, holiday. That's, right? that's Anyway, so I, I know it, it, it's interesting, but you know, but I grew up in Western Washington, and I remember Pioneer Day not being like a big deal, but we'd talk about it. You know, it would come up at church. You know, in, the, in late July, I knew what it was. Uh, we would do like Pioneer activities in the summer when I was in primary and pull sticks and things like that. So I just thought it was interesting. Um, I haven't gotten to the real meat of what we were intending to talk about yet, but I, I just wanted to kind of get your take on it because I, I do wonder about like how we treat history in our church and like is pioneer day is it a big deal is it not is it a utah thing or is it a church thing what do you think jeff so i think specifically pioneer day is an is a latter day saint holiday even though it is a utah state holiday because it it ostensibly celebrates just the founding of the state, the settling of the state, both mm-hmm. because the settling of the state by those of european descent, okay, the settling of the state and the creation of Utah, I get why they say that, but I think it's just, it's intrinsically tied to the church. How could it not be? Yeah. And yeah. And, and so it's like, and so in that sense, I almost feel like it should be, I mean, think about it. It's a civic holiday, but you always have, like you had Gene B. Bingham was the grand marshal in the days of 47 parade over the weekend, which is cool. What a cool note to go out on when you're the uh, soon to be the erstwhile Relief Society general president. What a great honor. But it's typically like church leaders are the ones who head up a... What, as far as I'm aware, the Days of 47 Parade is handled at a civic level in terms of funding and organization. I think I don't think it's church groups getting permits to do it. I think it's like at a civic yeah. level. Yeah, I think. I, I'm pretty sure. But, yeah, but um, so 
So in that sense, I uh, I feel like we should focus on it being more of a church thing and less of a of a civic thing. And um, I think it, but with that, that means that means it's more justifiable to make it a bigger thing around the world. I think we try to make Pioneer Day a thing globally. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think we have to an extent. I remember, I mean, this was like, honestly, it was like 2008. I remember reading an article in the church news and it was about these youth, like LDS youth in the Ukraine doing like a, a trek, like a, yeah, like a hand cart yeah. thing. And they had also like made a special hand cart. Like they made their own hand carts and they made one and they painted it up in the, you know, in like Ukrainian kind of traditional decor and colors and stuff like that. And they sent it to Utah to be like, here's our contribution to the celebration of our heritage. And it's like, I loved that they, they had kind of, they had, they had obviously adopted a heritage because none of these people had pioneer, like Mormon American pioneer ancestors who crossed the plains. They were, they were all converts and, and children of converts in Ukraine. And yet they felt like pioneers and people pushing the handcarts was a part of their own heritage. And I thought that was kind of interesting and, um, it came, I brought it up. I was in, you know, in my grad program in history at the time. And I brought it up in a class because, uh, somebody had made an argument specifically that you can't like adopt heritage. You can't adopt like, uh, like cultural heritage. And I was like, well, there's evidence that you can. So, well, yeah, I well, mean, and then theological, I mean, and heck even theologically, are we all adopted? Like as far as like seed of Abraham and all that kind of stuff. Sure, I mean, sure. A whole I other mean, thing too, right. Yeah. We right, can, we yeah. can adopt all kinds of things. Uh, and I've had, I want to let you talk about the main part, but I've always, I, I, I've, I don't know where I am really on Pioneer Day. Like, mm-hmm. there's this part of me that doesn't love it because I don't want to do it at the expense of the troop of pioneers abroad, and it seems just frankly weird. I mean, like we had people in our ward who were ser- senior missionaries over a church's ranch in Argentina that's pretty much used, I think, for actual ranching, and then like Argentinian saints come and do trek down there. And I guess it's cool to, I try to, I'm trying to be more open-minded about Trek because like natively, I'm not super big on the concept of Trek, especially when you have members of the church around the world, they're like, pull the handcarts. So you get in touch with what like your, your religious forebears did. You mean like, like, what, what percentage of religious forebears? Because how many handcart people were there actually? You know, Very small and a, and a small minority of even ones who actually died. It was all in all a pretty, the things we need to remember about Pioneer Day also, um, Latter-day Saints, this is a super cynical stuff. We weren't like trailblazers on the plains. We were following the Platte River. We were basically following the Oregon Trail for a very long time. We followed the Oregon Trail for the majority of the trek west. Not that it was easy, but we weren't like blazing trails out west. We were doing a lot of following what was there, and it's still difficult. And only kind of near the very end did we actually break off from even a trail the Donner Party had had taken care of to break off and go to Immigration Canyon. So these are things it's like, I don't want to disparage what we went through because obviously there was great suffering and risk and sacrifice and all sorts of things associated with what the Mormon pioneers did. But I think sometimes we get this notion that like they left Nauvoo and crossed the Mississippi river and it was just like open North America and no one knew what on earth they were going to do or how they were going to get there. And it was yeah. just bushwhacking and trailblazing the whole way. No, no. I mean, and this is a funny thing. If you actually do, I mean, and it's not like the church hides this stuff. It's not no, like, no, it, no. like, you know, it's very clear that Brigham Young sent scouts out. They found the Salt Lake Valley and reported back to him. And he was like, yeah, we'll go there. Tell, you know, make sure we, we go the right way. <laughs> you know? And so when he gets there and says, this is the right place, it's not because like, oh, like the heavens open. It's because 
he knew from the scouting reports like oh yeah this is the right place this is where we're supposed this is our destination <laughs> so and don't forget they were also fleeing america folks i believe right. I, that I, was the I, thing I, I wanted to bring up before we we delved into the links that you'd sent me because uh i just thought it's, i saw the guy who who conducted the music in our sacred meeting he was wearing an american flag tie and i saw other like kind of displays of like kind of patriotic colors and things and i was like when did when did pioneer day become like a patriotic holiday because we know now from the Council of 50 Minutes that Joseph was very intent on just ditching the country because the Constitution had failed. And not, not only ditching the country, but coming up with a new Constitution that would be better and serve, yeah. you know, as like a, as a protection of the people and be, bring theology into the government of the and, saints. And, and part of the reason they also wanted to do this, specifically, there's quotes from other leaders who, who want to go to Mexico because Mexico had a weak government. Like they said right. this on the record. Yeah. Mexico's government can for squat and we can do what we want. There. Exactly. So, so, so yeah, from Joseph Smith's time with Council of 50, they were planning on just ditching this whole U.S. thing. And then when Brigham Young takes over and they scout out and they find, you know, this Salt Lake Valley, one, yeah, one of the reasons they intended to go there was to like to get out of the United States. And yeah, yeah. like you said, and they could, well, you got a weak the government there, so they won't, they'll leave us alone and we'll be able to establish our own theocracy yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And so I just think it's funny. And then that a year like, later, it's the Mexican-American War and they're like, oh, geez. I guess we'll <laughs> send our volunteers. I mean, but yeah, so I was just like, when did it? And it was one thing that was really interesting. There was one guy in the ward and he was wearing a flat, a, a tie that was unmistakably a text. It was a, the Texas state flag adapted into a tie. Now this guy, I happened, I know for sure, born and raised in Idaho Falls in the neighborhood, you know, where we, where we live. And so I'm like, I know this guy's not Texan. Was this the closest thing he had to like an American flag tie? So he wore it for, probably for, 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 um, pioneer day. And I, but again, it just perplexes me because it's like, but why? Maybe he knows from the Council of 50 Minutes that they were considering going to Texas as one of their de- destinations. So maybe, or, or maybe that I'm was, just. That's a whole other fun thing to look into because they <laughs> wanted to actually, what do they want to convince Sam Houston to like turn over the Texas government to the Saints? And Something them, like that, or at least yeah, to cede pretty- a giant portion of the land to them and, and you know, kind of cooperate. Anyway, so all that being said, uh, it's not that much of a leap further to talk about what, you know, what, what brought on this discussion aside from it having been Pioneer Day yesterday. Uh, but Jeff found some interesting uh, links and and uh, one a Facebook post and another, I think, was it an article, uh, an op-ed from the an, Trib? I think it was an opinion piece in the Deseret News. In the Deseret News, which is, which is more interesting than it being in the Trib. But both of these uh, were people, you know, saying, hey, it's great to celebrate Pioneer Day. You should be proud of your heritage and know where you came from. If you, you know, especially, you know, if you do, you know, descend from pioneers across the plains. Uh, but it's important also to remember that these things didn't happen in a vacuum. And I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. But uh, when you have a bunch of white, you know, mostly white, mostly Western European, Northern, Northern Western European uh, descended people enter a place that was previously or concurrently habit, inhabited by a native population, something happens to one of those populations. And the fact that we continue to have predominantly white, predominantly North and Western European descended people inhabiting that, uh, that place that, you know, the Utah in Utah, that tells you what happened. Like uh, the native population was displaced and displaced is like the, the most polite term for it, right. In some term, in some cases killed, in some cases enslaved, imprisoned, what not, not enslaved, not in Utah, 
there, I don't think there was a, a history of Native American enslavement in, in Utah at the time. But the point being is that one person's migration is another person's displacement in a lot, in most cases. Uh, another thing that that's important to remember and to, to bring enslavement back is that some of the people who came, especially converts from the South, they did bring slaves with them. Utah was a slave territory until the federal government informed this, the, the territorial government otherwise. Um, Abraham O. Smoot, like that's a famous controversy on uh, the B- Brigham Young University campus. Like we, I, we talked about this story a little while ago that there are people who want to rename that building because he was a slaveholder. And Smoot is like the, I know a lot of people who claim him as a, as a, as an ancestor. Like he's a, a very prominent person in, in LDS and Utah history, but he brought slaves with him. And so it's like, let's yes, celebrate our heritage and let's yes, um, be proud of where we came from and be proud to know where we came from and like, look for the things that we want to emulate from those ancestors, but let's not do it at the expense of forgetting what the cost is of those things happening. And, th- and it's not, and this isn't just history. It's, it's a continual cost. Like someday there might be, <laughs> I hate, you know, I hate thinking this, but someday there might be, you know, ancestors of Russian colonizers in the Ukraine thinking, talking about the, the, the great stories of their Russian forebears that came to this land and fought so hard to have, to find a place here. And it's like, yeah, but what happened to the Ukrainians? <laughs> right. You know, so I don't know. That's probably not the best analogy, but it's the best I could come up with. Off well, the, I mean, off it's close. Cuff. It's close because I mean, I mean, we can we could digress a lot about the whole situation in Ukraine right now because Russia is actively trying to wipe Ukrainian identity out of the lands it currently right. occupies. Because yeah, according to Putin, there is no Ukrainian identity independent of Russian identity. For, so. Folks, indulge indulge me for a minute, just to be clear. The parts of Ukraine, about a fifth of the country, currently occupied by Russia, it's not like the military is just hanging out and people are going about their lives. They are deporting Ukrainians en masse to other parts of Russia. They have changed the currency. They are changing school curriculum. They are completely wiping out Ukrainian identity. And that is and the this goal. is textbook. I mean, this is what you do when you try to colonize something. There's a reason why most Irish people don't speak Irish. It's because you take away their language. You take away their you know, all the things so that, so that you can create a new identity among the people that you're yeah, conquesting. Yeah. And, and, and it is textbook. Like I've, I've been reading a book, everyone should read it by the way, called Bloodlands. And it's about Europe, uh, kind of between Hitler and Stalin, like everything going on in the interwar period leading up through World War II and all of that and everything you're seeing that they did back then to try to like completely destroy the concept of Polish nationhood, for example. Right. But, but even also Ukrainian nationhood was a thing back then. So that's, Read the book, folks. It's a very good book. We enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit for my book club. Right. Um, yeah, I enjoy the stuff you posted here, this article, because what's cool, we can go back and forth about Pioneer Day and yes, who was displaced, who was not. How weird is it that we have a civic thing where we have like floats about like the Taylorsville Temple or part of the Days of 47 Parade? Like, I, like okay, whatever. But I do love a couple things. I love that church, the church news, this go around, did publish a number of different stories about pioneers in other countries around the world and what it meant to, to start up the church in those places and be a part of that. I think that was terrific. I hope they will do more of that because we need these kinds of stories also to get perspective on what it's like for saints all around the world. And I'm not going to read through all of them now. Some were big feature pieces on one particular person or a couple of people in one country, or some are like this one I, I found that just kind of checks off in alphabetical order every European country and has a couple of paragraphs about each and what the history is of of the saints there and the people who kind of help the church get somewhere in these countries, right? And the church in Europe is a has a very different history because so many saints converted back in the early days, but then they came to North America to help strengthen the church 
where it was at the time, right? And and so as a result, Europe today is not heavily Latter-day Saint. It might have been, but then the church itself might not have survived. So who knows? But those are cool to read about. And uh, I'm also loving though this new uh, these new statues that went up right over at this at the this is the place Heritage Park over there near Immigration Canyon. This is a big deal. I mean, they added a three statues celebrating Black Pioneers. This is a Black Pioneer monument, and you have um, I'm going to get them all wrong, but you've got uh, Jane Manning James, of course, Green Flake, who was a slave and came over, and then the uh, the brothers. Hark Wales and Oscar Smith, who were part of the vanguard who entered Emigration Canyon in the first place, back, the first group who came in in 1847. And they've got some beautiful large statues of all of them, as well as some uh, monoliths, I'm going to call it. What do we call it? Just that they have writing about them behind them on giant slabs. I'm going to call them monoliths, so it sounds creepy and and mysterious. So, so, so it invokes uh, images of 2001? Yeah, something like that. Um, <laughs> This is great. And they dedicated this over the weekend in celebration of Pioneer Day. Had a lot of dignitaries and people who have been involved in telling these stories, like the director of Jane and Emma, of the Jane and Emma film, as well as um, uh, as well as uh, Mally Bonner, who did uh, His Name is Greenflake. These stories, these are stories that need to be told. And I'm thrilled the church, however late, but for, who cares, like that they've put these statues up there and they're now part of the Heritage Park that we have that celebrates this entire entry into the valley. Awesome that they did this. Very happy about that. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, And I I hope that this is a trend that continues, that we keep on seeing more of this acknowledgement of diversity, even though, I mean, again, as we've said, like the majority of these people were white, North and and Western European descended people, but that doesn't mean there weren't diverse converts and people, you know, who joined in this movement, black people, um, uh, Native American people, for sure. Like there there definitely was uh, some, you know, there was this peppering in of other cultures and other peoples. And I love recognizing that as part of our history and, and making sure that it's, uh, I think, I think part of this too is, is by embracing, even though it's a minority of converts, but embracing it and, and emphasizing it, I think it's an effort to make the, the church continue to be a more and more welcoming place for diverse peoples in the present, you know? So anyway, I like it. I think it's good. It is cool. An- another story you should, uh, folks, you should read if you get a chance. Odessa mm-hmm. Living ran another one of these stories. Uh, a firsthand account by Kendra Bybee, who was, she's a pioneer because she was the first black sister missionary called to serve a mission in our day. That's really interesting. Um, my cool. my wife's family counts many Bybees among their descent, uh, their ancestors. And so I wonder if there's any kind of connection to my wife's family's Bybee name and the sister. So the, the funny thing is, there's a photo of her. She went up serving in Brazil, mm. and um, she's standing right next to a young, uh, a certain uh, elder, Ulysses Suarez, who served as mission at the same time, and awesome. Sister Suarez. So I think did the Suarez's were that was that a mission romance? Did they come out of that? Is that where it? Uh, I don't know, but I if so, I, I have no judgment. You know, like, that, no, there's no judgment. I get, I've got friends who got married post mission. I know they weren't doing anything stupid during the mission. That's fine. You meet somebody cool and you follow up. Good, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Um, one last thing real quick. Uh, well, I think it's the one last thing, at least for, that I wanted to throw in here uh, while we were on a church history topic was <laughs> you found this great LDS living article of, mm. uh, 12 things you didn't know about the work in the glory because the work of the glory is still relevant, I guess. It's, it's a huge part of the zeitgeist, Jared, but yeah. I'm talking about it. So I, I want to really quickly just wax personal as I have 
and always do. Uh, so I remember when I started reading these books, I only read, I think I read four of them and I just didn't continue. But I, I started, I think, in like ninth grade. So this is like 1994-ish, maybe, 95. And I remember doing like a book report in, in class where I actually portrayed, I acted and portrayed the prophet Joseph Smith myself and, and gave the book report in persona as Joseph. I'm pretty sure everybody loved it and remembers it to this day. It was probably the best book report ever given at Rose Hill Junior high and they all joined the church in Redmond, too, Washington. As a result, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I remember when everybody was talking about the work of the glory. Remember, I actually forgot this. This the article, the listicle, uh, talked a little bit about the films that were made, and I and I had honestly forgotten <laughs> that they had made some films of the books. And um, I had not because I worked at Deseret Book when uh, some of these were being made. And did yeah. they make films to cover all of the books? Did they? Did I they cover they, the entire story? I think, I mean, because there's like, there's like nine working the glory books, right? There's only three films. I think they, I don't know if this is like a Narnia situation where they just kind of picked a couple of the books and did them or if they compressed them and tried to do the whole thing. Who knows? Uh, So there's nothing, it was funny too, because reading through this listicle, nothing really seemed that interesting to me as far as like (laughs) things you wish you had known about Gerald Lund or this work. Um, I and 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 I want to be clear here. I like Gerald Lund. I actually think he's a pretty good writer. My favorite Gerald Lund book, which I'm going to recommend to our uh, readers, our listeners who are readers, is uh, called The Alliance. It's a book he wrote. I want to say in like the mid to late '80s, and it's great. It's one of these dystopian stories. It's science fiction. I that's think it's right, really good. That's right up your alley. That's your, Oh, yeah. That's your, it's so yeah. good. Everybody go and the next Gerald Lund book you read, make it The Alliance. It's great, but you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, but one thing that did make me smile in this little listicle is uh, number six. It says, someone else tried to write the work in the glory. Dun, that, dun, that's dun. It says, Lund wasn't the first person who tried writing the work in the glory. Mo, the Ricks College donor, I, Mo's the last name here. The Ricks College donor who asked for Lund's help not only came up with the idea, but also attempted to create a draft. It didn't go very well, though. And Lund recalls that Mo later told him, it's obvious that I can't do it. Parentheses. Mo's wife jokingly added, "That's for sure." <laughs> I just think that they—the fact that they added that into the article—is really funny, and and the fact that the wife is just like totally not shy about disparaging her husband and his ability to write write a oh, but a it's, the cla- it's, the, it's the classic loving Latter Day Saint, you know, wife jokey stuff. You know, that's you know, you got to your rib, your rib him. I guess I just thought it was so funny. I was like, "Oh man, this this wife, this guy's wife, totally digged on him," and then they put it in the article. Like poor Mo. Anyway, if you have such interest, interest in such things, and if you are a work of the glory fan, and I have no judgment if you are, I just I stopped reading after four because I lost interest. I was much more interested in reading um, history. Nephi tore tennis shoes. Way better series. T- tennis shoes about Nephi's. I was totally That's into those books as a kid too. Um, no, I was just more interested in reading histories rather over historical fiction. That's the person I grew into um, as attested to the fact that I then went on and did a master's in history. But, you know, if, uh, my point is, if you like uh, Gerald Lund as an author, as I do, and if you like the work of the glory specifically, check out this uh, listicle from LDS Living. You it's might like- find it more interesting than I did. 
the listicle is reaching to have 13 facts though. Some of these could be compressed yeah. into one fact. I mean, oh, like he sure. said, yeah, like, it, it almost never happened. And he said, no, that's basically one. When it mentions that, um, someone else tried to write the work in the glory that could be folded into the next one that says how, where the idea came from in the first place. Cause it mentions again that Mo tried writing a draft for years, but couldn't make it work. And then he approached Lund to do yeah. it. I feel yeah, like we're really stretched. trying to get to the number 13 here, folks. It's like butter scraped over too much bread kind of a thing. Um, yeah, but, the, you know, the, good, the other thing I found time. interesting is that it mentioned specifically that he wanted to get ecclesiastical approval. He like sent it up the chain to. He like, was well. He was also he was a seventy at the time. So right, he was, and they are pretty controlling. Like you know, when you keep a journal as a a general authority or as an heir authority, seventy even if like the church will then requisition your journal, like it becomes church property. The what? journal that you keep during that time, yeah. Um, and so they're pretty. They they keep a tight lid on what you do when you're acting as a general or area sure. authority. So it makes sense that he asked for ecclesiastical permission. But it, it basically said like the church, you know, the 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 leaders basically said it was okay as long as his that his content didn't raise any red flags. And it's like, and it didn't. So <laughs> I, know, I saw that part too. Don't worry. Yeah, I mean, everybody. it's definitely. It's a histor- it's a work of historical fiction, but it is definitely a devotional work as well. He is writing from a perspective of faith to an audience of faithful Latter Day Saint people who want to view the history in a in a you know in a lens that is going to be inspiring. So it makes yeah. sense that he he wouldn't want to put any red flags in there because that's not what that's not the book he was trying to write. I remember when the movies came out, the first one was PG, but the second one was PG-13. What? Is it because and, like uh, they had like some some violence? Was there, like, It was just some some pioneer violence. Hans and, Mill uh, type stuff. Yeah. and yeah. Uh, but, I, but I remember like some people were like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can have my children watch this now. Oh no. What will I do? This yeah, is well, a different- this, not until they're 13. You got to go with what the was, MPAA says. You know, Bear in mind, this was kind of right when the, the PG thirteen LDS film was like that. That was a risky move at mm-hmm. that period in history. Like we were just going to kind of get near saints and soldiers, but we weren't in a place where movies like Freetown or the Saratov approach, things like that, could happen. It was kind of a big deal. We thought we were really going. Oh boy! Oh boy. But okay. Also, fun fact: Saints and Soldiers originally given an R rating. They had to cut really? it down. Yeah. I mean, there was some pretty heavy stuff in that film. Like they, they, there was some you know deep content that you know make it was supposed to make you uncomfortable so i could kind of see that oh and i was uncomfortable <laughs> all right uh so our good old friend sam brunson there um he this is a, something he's talked about for years but here we go again girls should be passing the sacrament full stop that's his okay. argument uh it's an interesting argument because it, it, it's immediately kind of intriguing. Now, before you tune out, because I think anyone could say, oh, come on now. Like, we've got this in the back. Like, we've got this figured out. We know how we do it. The, the deacons pass the sacrament and yada, yada, yada. His arguments are, I, I think, I, I, I want to I lean on the more, this, the strictly doctrinal theological side of it. Because you can, obvi- I don't like the whole idea that, you know, when people try to say, well, men need to use have the priesthood and do these things because they're not naturally service oriented, and it helps Ooh. them. Blah 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 blah. blah, blah, blah. Nope. We don't need any of that. None of that. And and I do believe we should let women feel important, and I would li- I want to include them in every way possible in our worship and in our rites and all those sorts of things that that is reasonable. But the main thing he gets on here, uh, as a reminder, is that the doctrine and covenants does not actually specify who passes the sacrament around. It specifies who administers the sacrament. It says very clearly in section 20, neither teachers nor deacons have authority to baptize, administer the sacrament, or lay on hands. And we might be kind of like, you know, we're, we're being very particular with the verbiage here. 
But I think we have to remember that administering the sacrament means blessing the, you know, having the sacrament there and kneeling and blessing it. And then however it gets disseminated, the, the administration of the sacrament is not the passing of the sacrament. It is the blessing of the sacrament. You know, what's and, interesting about that point then too, it just occurred to me is that that also means that laying out the trays and things is not um, the administration of the sacrament either. And, and we create this division, you know, deacons can pass, teachers can pass. But like when I was growing up, a deacon couldn't go and lay the trays out and put the bread in the trays and fill the water cups. They had to be, those were, that was the teacher's job. And I always thought that was like, there was a doctrinal or scriptural reason for that. And there isn't. Yeah. So how did we get there? That's what I want to know. Then how did we get to this place where we have outlined those duties specifically for teachers and deacons and that we treat it. I mean, I don't want to be too irreverent here, but you know, we treat it as gospel. I mean, I grew up in the same thing. Like we read stuff like this, which this is what you can do as a deacon. You can pass the sacrament. Once you become a teacher, you still have that ability under the Aaronic priesthood. And you can also prep it. Once you're a priest, you can bless it. You can also baptize people if you want to. Yada, yada. Um, the priest stuff is a little more laid out. Obviously it's right there in the scriptures, but I like, where, where do we, De- develop this mindset for the other offices within the priesthood as far I as I don't know, especially can. since if you think about it, like once, so, you know, so the, the priests are up there and they bless it and then they hand it across to, you know, the table to teachers and deacons who then pass it. But then, you know, a teacher or deacon will walk, you know, in, in a standard, you know, cha- LDS chapel, they will walk to the edge of a row of seats, a, you know, a pew or whatever and then hand it and let the rest of the whoever's sitting there pass it on down the line. So it's not just deacons passing the sacrament, it's moms and daughters and sisters and it's little little kids, you know, who are under baptism age or under priesthood age. It's like every every one of those people is technically passing the sacrament. And so I mean if there really was a strict requirement that it had to be a priesthood holder that it had to be a deacon, teacher, priest, etc., then we would leave every other row blank empty so that they could hold on to the tray as they walked down the line. Um, so obviously, yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's leeway in there that we're not exploiting or haven't exploited for whatever reason. Like you said, I, that's a good question about how it came to be. I'm sure there are people who know that better archivists and people who have read into the histories of how it came to be that, because, you know, there's not even a scriptural justification for, uh, there is for receiving the priesthood. No, actually, no, because we made it so that it's there's no there's no minimum age, um, or mac- yeah, for receiving the priesthood, as evidenced by the fact that within the last couple of years we made it so that eleven year olds can receive it. Um, oh, and, then and also thought, there's no reason why that. then that you do a deacon from this year age to that age and a teacher from this age to that age. Like it was never that way in the early restoration. We created this sure. tradition an administrative tradition perhaps for stipulating what ages you, at what ages you advance and, to the different and that offices. Can of course be, yeah. And all that can be changed. Like we talk about that and right. also how we, it's not the age thing, but how we got rid of the high priest group and changed that entire structure and just folded it in with the elder quorum. Right. Right. I mean, so, like we, so yeah. So, I mean, it would not be surprising to me if we saw young women passing, helping with the passing of the sacrament or laying out the trays and filling the cups and things like that. There's no reason not to, it's just that we haven't done it that way. And as far as I know, aside from strongly worded blog posts from people I respect, like Sam Brunson, I think he's he's got a good mind. Um, <laughs> but beyond you know his types of blog posts, we haven't seen a reason for that to change coming down from leadership or coming up from the ranks. Uh, Jared, should, should we march on Temple Square and uh, 
elevate the issue. We might get X'd, but then they will change the policy after the fact. <laughs> I was going to say that usually works, right? Usually they respond really well to activism, um, public activism. That's 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 the main you, thing that the church when, really likes. When you embarrass the church in particular, they respond very well to that. Yes. Anyway, but it is a good point. And this actually made me do some some good thinking. And now I actually want to research this issue more because I think like a lot of people in the church, I've just taken for granted that the structure and the duties are what they are because they are what they are. And I'm not agitating for change specifically, but um, it's it's a good reminder to like actually look into what our doctrine says and what is the history of what. So I'm going to do more of that now, especially because now that I'm in the bishopric, I'm going to be like, hey, so check this out. I was reading something. You need to call up the young women, fourteen through eighteen year old class, get them, and then I'll get, kicked. and then I get kicked out of the bishopric, and mm-hmm. then I. That's does how I the, get out. I'm sure the handbook stipulates very specifically who can pass the sacrament. Oh, I'm sure it does. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I've perused that handbook. Uh, let's just stick with our friend Sam Brunson uh, for a minute. He wrote another interesting post on by common consent, and he's addressing. Uh, well, the title of the post is on laws related to abortion. And he's kind of responding to uh, the church's official statement on the Dobbs decision. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I don't want to delve into it here. I don't know. I don't like we often kind of dip our toes into political waters when, when you and I are hosting at least this. Well, not just you and I. I've heard it with multiple of your no, many no, of your no, co-hosts. no, it's just you. No, it's just, just you. Devin never. Devin never gets political at all. Um, but uh, I, but. The, the, anyway, the point is he's he's responding a bit to uh, kind of what the church said, and then also just responding to the general idea of, um, especially because since Utah's laws, a lot of I, I've seen a lot of kind of Dobbs apologists defending Utah's um, abortion control laws, saying it just it's just a basically encoding what's in the church handbook into state law, and. Uh, Brother Brunson does a really good job of kind of poking holes in that idea and why it's very difficult to take guidelines of behavior, you know, suggestions of behavior from a church publication and then try to codify that into a state law and how those things, it's not easy to just, it's not an A to B, you know, B equals A kind of transition. Uh, you you hit speed bumps. And one of the big ones that I saw, and, and I think this might've been more in the comments section than in the actual article itself. But for example, like, so the, the Utah law requires, you know, you know, it acknowledges that it may be justifiable to have a, an abortion if, if the pregnancy is the result of rape. But then the, um, the law in Utah requires proof like that you have to have filed a police report to, you know, so that, that the rape is on record. And that just introduces all sorts of problems uh, because of the nature of rape and because of the nature of familial rape and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but then, but then, so then, you know, so not only is, is it a legal, like really uh, sticky situation legally, but also then if you try to like reverse and go back to the source, the quote unquote source of this all, does the church policy require a police report? Does the church require you know, policy require some sort of proof of rape. It doesn't have anything like that. And so I think, and I think that's the sort of the, what I, the, the main gist that I got out of this post was the idea that, yeah, I mean, it's good for you to have your standards. And if you derive those standards from guidelines from the church, that's your prerogative to do so. But when you take church manual guidelines and try to enforce them and encode them as law that applies to a large population, a significant portion of which is not members of your church, 
we start hitting problems. And then we also start um, ignoring nuances that the law has to be able to acknowledge. And so I don't know, it was an, a very interesting post. And I, and I think it's, it's even if you disagree with Sam Brunson on this, and a lot of our listeners may, it's still good food for thought. I think it's a good way to consider something a little outside of what you had considered before. Yeah. And I, and I don't have much more to say about it, but I liked it for the same reasons you did in that I think we easily fall back on those those exceptions as outlined in the church. Like that's an easy thing to just work through if it is that situation, but it's not always the case. And it's important to have that nuance and distinction and just thinking that at the end of the day, yeah, it's lawyers making decisions. It's not even doctors necessarily sometimes. Uh, and that, that gets very complicated. So yeah. you kind of see why you can't just simply say, well, codify what the church does and all will be well. And you know, bit, that's been attempted before, <laughs> in not just U.S. history, but in world history, trying to codify religious principles and precepts into law. And it generally doesn't work well, you know, like it just, it generally doesn't. And I'm not saying that you can't use your religion or your faith or your beliefs as like a basis for your understanding of what's right and wrong or what should be a law. But when you try too hard to marry the two things, religious principle and enforceable and coded law, it starts to get messy. And we've seen that, you know, with the Puritan settlements uh, in you know, colonial America. And we've seen that with Catholic settlements elsewhere in the world. Like we've seen that in the history of great Britain, where many of our listeners descend from, like it gets, it's not, it's often best to try and put a, a, a a line of separation between here's what I believe and, you know, have faith is true. And here's what I want to enforce other people to have to do as well. So good points. Well, um, well, we're, we're wrapping up here, but since we were sort of talking politics, but abortion is more of a moral issue where political issues, you know, define how we, uh, how we deal with it and enforce it. This is much more straight politics, but the, the subjects are Latter-day Saints, one of whom has been a guest on the show a couple of times. Evan McMullen is now running for Utah Senate, right? So you've had the- well, uh, U.S. Senate. Uh, sorry, sorry, I would say he, he's running for the U.S. Senate in Utah. So- um, the Republicans got their whole primary thing out of the way and Mike Lee still prevailed. So they tried to out primary him, didn't really go anywhere, but he did, you know, Becky Edwards did pretty well. But now this is the big show here because Evan McMullen is running as an independent. And he always was. He was sitting out the Republican primary. He, he, I think, felt that was not a good use of his time. And of course, he's built up his political profile in the past six years or so since we first spoke to him and he ran for president against one Donald John Trump. Um, and so anyway, straight politics, but I think it's fascinating just with the, in the context of what goes on in Utah, what plays well in Utah. And I am surprised that they said that the election were held today, according to a poll, uh, Evan McMullen is within five points of Mike Lee, who's still winning, but five points is getting close. The margin of error was 3.46 points. So you're getting close to that. So that, that's actually better than I expected. I almost I think so much of this stuff is just for... It's the show, it's the drama, it's what the media loves to report on because it's interesting. But at the end of the day, Mike Lee's still going to get like 70% of the vote. You know, I, I kind of expect that kind of thing. So this is interesting at the very least to see what's happening there. And uh, and Mike Lee's disapproval rating is higher than his approval rating. We're not endorsing anyone one way or the other, but I think it's fascinating to watch what, who really are two conservatives going after each other, one of whom just thinks one of the other one has sold out. And he's just saying, I'm still going to be a conservative in the caucus with them. I'm just like not going to 
do the same things Mike Lee did. Like he's just he's presenting McMullen's presenting himself as a conservative alternative without the baggage, more or less. And so it's just kind of fascinating right. to watch. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's it's kind of I mean new candidate same rhetoric in a lot of ways because you know everyone's talking especially on especially on the conservative side of things you you get this idea of like the principled conservative like that we're going back to principles and that's kind of what uh, mcmillan's line is uh it's just that the principles he's advocating for are i think a little different from what mike lee would say his principles are like i think they i think they do from what i have be able to see. I think they do have different ideas of what co- being conservative means. I think that's probably true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but the, but the, the whole idea of like I'm the principled conservative that is not a new take when you're running. Um, not, you know, not, not, for, not for a seat in Utah, Arizona, Idaho, Indiana, yeah. Texas, etc. Yeah. So, so I'll be curious to see what happens. And I remember back in 16 when McMullen ran, he took a sizable share. Like if all of his votes, if all of the McMullen votes had gone to Hillary, Hillary would have won Utah. Right. Over Trump instead, which was yeah, but, interesting. Which is interesting, yeah. So it's curious to follow this um, a little more strictly on what appeals to Latter Day Saints. I think some of McMullen's political ads have been very interesting. Um, like one shows him right now with his wife talking about how they're raising their kids to have good values, and we need to bring values back to the Senate and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's just Evan only got married like last year, and he married a woman who already had kids. That's great for them. I'm not. I'm never knocking anyone, regardless of their situation. Right. But it is the way it plays. It almost seems like here I am, Evan and my wife, and the the children we have made together and been raising since birth, and the values we've given them. Right. When when if and if you don't know of McMullen, you would you would assume that, and that would play well in Utah, the whole family values thing and the family right. dynamic. But you know, and that's not saying he's not a great step. I mean, down. if you I'm want sure to get really technical, one. I mean, if he's been in that marriage for a year, he for a year he has been helping raise children. And so, I'm sure he's doing fine. And and Evan, right. we know you but, listen but all the time. It, but, but it does feel but, a little misleading. It's like, well, yes, you are helping raise these children as of the last, you know, one tenth of their lives, you know, or whatever. So how old, yeah, the, however old like the kids that. are. That's just but, fun, no, but, but good for him. I am glad he found somebody. I know he that was something he'd been working on for a long time. I'm glad that he got instant family because I'm sure he, he wanted kids. Uh, but I do raise an eyebrow at. Uh, capitalizing on the political value of <laughs> said children. Of the kids. Yeah, it's a little... <laughs> I felt that way just tangentially. I listened to uh, Adele's latest album a, a few weeks ago, and, and I thought overall it was great. But there are a couple of times where there's there are recordings of her son. I think he's like 10. Like t- you know, or or younger, uh, yeah, younger. Anyway, she, but then she's talking, having these old conversations about her divorce and stuff with her child, and clips of it made it onto the album and, and I was like, it ah, feels a little exploitative there, Adele. Maybe leave your child out of it, out of your... Also, it's a it's a bold move when you try to make the the impressive concept album and you interweave like spoken word segments that are supposed to mean something. That's risky. Yeah, it is risky. You, I mean, I think the killer, I think Brandon Flowers, another Latter-day Saint, did it pretty well though on the on Pressure Machine, if you sure. read that killer's record. Which has sure. rec- I'm just actually- saying, like let's 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 let kids be kids and maybe not work them into your divorce album or your political campaign. But that's yeah, just used, me. If I used my kids for politics, people would would think I'm not succeeding as a parent, and so I would be <laughs> I less likely most, to. Most parents would say that. <laughs> I feel like, what is wrong with your children? Hey, let's <laughs> hey let's rapid fire the rest of this. So uh, yeah, we don't Ash- even have to touch on all of them. But I yeah, just want to say Ashley Hatch. I think this is nice. It's cool. Uh, she was a prominent uh, soccer playing uh, athlete at BYU, and she now plays for the U.S. Women's Team. She re- recently received an ESPY award from ESPN. I don't w- 
follow soccer. I don't follow the SBs, uh, but I respect that we have a success. Like it, I know what it, you know, that it's nearly impossible to make it as a professional athlete. And uh, we have this great LDS example of a professional athlete making it and getting awards. And I say, good on you, Ashley Hatch. Good job. And yeah, and, and you should know, I mean, getting awards run by temporal worldly institutions is what matters in this life. I mean, that's, yeah. that's I'm, sure. I'm for it. Another quick one here. Over in Angola, they've broken ground on the first chapel. And as they described the Central African country of Angola, I guess I'll give Angola Central African, but I think of it more Southern African, but okay, whatever, fine. It's, I mean, it's just right next to, above Namibia. Do they, do they speak, is that one of the Portuguese speaking? It's one of the few Portuguese ones. Yeah, very... Um, so there is a stake in Angola centered around the capital city of Luanda, but it's the first time they're going to have their first, uh, you know, actual dedicated building in the entire country, which is cool. Uh, good for them. Uh, Angola has a, a difficult history, lengthy civil war. I believe they still have like uh, a sickle and a, and a machine gun on their flag as part of their flag. It's a, I believe that's memory, true. Yeah. Memory serves. But today Angola has over 4,100 members uh, in the country. And uh, it's changing rapidly, largely Portuguese speaking. Fun fact, the capital city of Luanda is the largest Portuguese speaking capital city in the world. Interesting. It's got more people than uh, Brasilia in Brazil, for example. I doubt it has more people in Sao Paulo. The old oh, capital. yeah. Sao Paulo is pretty well, highly populated. But, but that's yeah. still pretty impressive. And Luanda, Angola's got a lot of its money coming in from uh, petroleum reserves right now. Luanda is one of the most expensive cities in the world for expats. And I always appreciate that. I don't know, just like the contrast that draws. Cause you assume like, yeah, if I had to go work and I was living in, in a country in Southern Africa, it's going to be fine. But in all reality, it's going to be extremely expensive for you to live there for a that's number just, of reasons as an expat. So it's really interesting, but pretty cool for the saints there. And uh, they're supposed to have it completed by about a year from now, next summer. Uh, and then continuing with uh, rapid fire news out of Africa in South Africa, there was, there is a youth center. And this is interesting because that was your, our story was about uh stake center, but now this is a more of a municipal, I think type building. It was a, it's called the Um Zansi youth in business center in Peter Maritzburg in That's South Africa. definitely the native uh, Zulu based languages. Yeah. Well, in South Africa's province of KwaZulu Natal. So that sounds okay. A so more... that part's legit. The other part sounds a little bit more like Africa. Anyway, the point is there is there is this great youth center that's supposed to be helping educate youth and help them kind of get a leg up and elevate themselves uh, through learning more about business and developing uh, themselves professionally. And it was severely damaged in a hailstorm, and the church stepped in and has helped to repair the roof of that youth center, uh, garnering goodwill in the community. And but I think also just showing. That you know, say what you will about you know, in a, I'm sure some of our listeners were about some of the things that the church does, and you know, a lot of people question motives and stuff. But I, I love seeing that the church is like always 100% for service and helping, especially in places that are focusing on development and raising people out of poverty yeah. and changing the course of people's lives in that way. And um, so I think that's great that the church is stepping in and saying like, hey, this is a place that helps people. We want to help people. You damaged your roof. We're going to help you out. Amen. That's good stuff. Do we want to talk about President Nelson and labels, or is that a whole big subject that we can't even get into? Right. It now? is a whole big subject. Um, and but you know, let's you know. Usually, you, when I'm on the show, we go an hour and twenty or so. It's an hour and ten. So let's just wrap it. Let's let's set a record with Jared. Well, <laughs> unless you want to talk about President Nelson labels, it's a okay. very short. Oh, by, oh, by wrap it, you mean end it, not like let's wrap. Like ribbity rap tastic. 
Oh my gosh. Rap, rap. Did you say well, did the, you just say ribbity raptastic? Yeah, everything's all ribbity raptastic. It's like what rap was like in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, well we'll call it there, but President Nelson had a post on July 20th. Go read it. Good reminder about labels, and I think that'll that'll cover it there. Jared, anything to promote? Where's your Star Trek podcast, man? Oh, what happened to the podcast? I hope it's not dead. I, I it's mostly on me. I've really dropped the ball on this. And if my brother's listening, I'm so sorry, Shark. We, I really want to do my part to revive it. So stay tuned for future episodes of the Jean Luc Picardcast. Maybe I hope. In the meantime, while I have been quite disappointed with the Picard show, I highly recommend everybody go watch Strange New Worlds, uh, the, the the newest Star Trek series. It is. It is, it is the Star Trek series I've been wanting for the last 20 years. So wow. go watch. Lots of endorsement. Yeah, okay. it's really good. We'll go watch that. And folks, uh, you know, listen to us wherever you get your podcast. We'll do, hey, leave us reviews. We haven't asked for some in a while. So if you get this on Apple Podcasts, drop us a review. Or on Spotify, leave us a review. We'd appreciate also, it. Also, I think you have a Patreon. Is that correct, Jeff? Yeah, it is a thing. It is a thing. You can help financially support the show at patreon.com slash This Week in Mormons, which really we're asking you for like $3 a month. Three bucks a month. That's literally less than a dollar a week. Okay. So this isn't even like a cloying ad with Sarah McLaughlin and some suffering puppies where they say it's like 60 cents a day. 60 cents a day adds up to be a lot more money. I'm literally asking you for something that's like a grand total of like 80 cents a week, folks. 10 cents a day. Okay. 10 cents a day. That's a bargain. And and I will send you a picture of the animal or, or host you are helping. <laughs> do you view some of your co-hosts as animals is that what you're yes, just saying yes, there, Jeff? yes you will you will get a random photo of uh just of devon thorpe in your mail one day <laughs> or or now. the or the animal you most associate with each host like <laughs> it's like you send a picture of a picture of a narwhal and it's like this is my co-host jared you help, well, it is, you help um, keep him on the air Old school uh, Twitter followers might remember by tradition in the last session of general conference, probably just to kind of stay with it because I think you run out of steam near by the end. Mm-hmm. We would always start tweeting out who someone's Patronus was, like whoever, whoever's speaking. We just decide that was their Patronus, you know, the sure. Harry Potter charm. Sure. Yeah. So, Jared, now I know you will be a narwhal. <laughs> I don't know why I chose that, but Got that's that what popped in my head. Well, that was fun. All right, folks. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen this week, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Jared, my friend, until we meet again, buddy. Have a good rest of your uh, late summer. If we ever meet again, it'll be Zion to me. I can't even top that. All right, folks, this has been Twim. Have a great week. Talk to you soon.